Well, who was Jesus anyway? That's the title of an article I read this week on the Daily Beast website. It was written by Jay Perini, a very diverse author. He writes on almost anything. Usually not too religious, but he recently wrote a biography of Jesus. The article I read was a short summary of his book. Before offering his own interpretation of who Jesus was, he notes the diversity of opinions and interpretations of Jesus that have come before. Some have thought of him as a a wandering magician, a quiet peasant, a radical revolutionary, a mystic, a progressive Jew, a prophet of doom, and a long-awaited Messiah. The author implies that there are so many Jesuses out there because there's very little known about him. And he seems particularly concerned about the fact that we don't know where or how he was educated, since Jesus' speeches seem richly elusive and intelligent. And here's his conclusion. Here's his Jesus. In my view, Jesus was a kind of religious genius born in a fertile place and time. Greek ideas about body and soul had begun to take root in the Middle East. The winds of Eastern mysticism blew in from Persia. Jesus grasped these concepts and weaved them into his teaching. By his death and crucifixion, he modeled suffering and death as well as life. He understood that his life was symbolic, even mythical. And by his resurrection, which was not a great resuscitation, but a kind of magical transformation into a new form, a new life, he offered humanity hope. He's part of the great mythos, Perini says. He's the central character in the greatest story ever told. It's a story about a kingdom that lies inside each of us. He encouraged us to enter the wider mind of God through attachment to his teaching and left us only one commandment, love one another as I have loved you. Well, that's an interesting Jesus. I don't think it's quite the one we find in the Bible. Is Jesus simply a wax nose that we can play with and adjust to our own liking? Is it ever good to begin a a sentence In my view, Jesus is, or I like to think of Jesus as. The question is, what was he? Who was he? What did he do? And where do we go for the answers? Some would say, I suppose, very little evidence about the real Jesus can be had. But we've been studying the book of Mark together as a church in recent weeks and months, and I think we've seen plenty of information about what he said and what he did who he was and what he came to do, even if those in the story around Jesus didn't understand who he was and what he came to do. Mark begins by telling us who Jesus is, not just was, is. Mark 1.1 says he's Jesus Christ, the Son of God. When it says Son of God there, it doesn't just mean that he is God's Son, It also means that he's God. This isn't a perfect illustration, but when I was born of a Kelly, I became a Kelly, right? I wasn't just a son of Kelly. I was a Kelly by virtue of being born of a Kelly. 
Again, not a perfect illustration for the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all being God, but the Son of God means that Jesus is divine. And when it says that Jesus is the Christ, that's not just his last name. Jesus Christ, Christ means Messiah there. It's an Old Testament term meaning the anointed one, God's anointed, his king. He's the promised one, the the long-awaited one. When we say Messiah, though, unless we're very, very familiar with our Bibles, it just sounds like Savior. It means more in Jewish theology, of course, in Old Testament theology. It's hard for us to get our minds around it. And some have suggested that this is one way of describing what Messiah really means, that he's the answer. He's the answer. You say, to what question? And that's irrelevant. He's the answer. He's the conclusion. He's it. He's the Messiah, the Christ. And that's really the meaning of Christmas. The answer has come. The conclusion is here. Yes, there's still more to come, but it's already clear who he is and what he came to do. It's here. He's here. Not just a baby, not just a birth. Not just a neat story, not just an inspiring story, not just, not just a tradition. Far from it. It is God who has come. That's verse 1 of Mark 1. And from there, Mark teaches us about Jesus who teaches. He teaches us about Jesus who heals. He shows us Jesus teaching and healing here and there and everywhere. And he also shows us how people respond to all that. And the question throughout is, Will anyone get it? Will they see? Will they hear? Will they understand what this means? Or will they keep scratching their heads? Will they say, who is this man? And keep saying it? That's what we've seen so far in Mark as we've studied it together. People saying, how does he do what he does? By what authority does he teach like he does? Isn't this just Mary and Joseph's son? Didn't we grow up with this guy? Isn't he just a carpenter? Well, we come to Mark 8 today as the story continues. And we'll look at three different scenes which go together in Mark 8. First, it's a miracle, and then there are two responses to that same miracle. One of the surprising things and what we'll see is that people indeed continue to not get Jesus, to not get who he is. Another surprising thing is that when some ask for a sign, a proof, evidence about who he is and what he's come to do, Jesus says, no sign will be given to this generation. That's verse 12 of chapter 8. We'll get to that in just a bit. It's getting slightly ahead of ourselves. Let's read all three scenes, and then we'll look at each of them more closely. Chapter 8, verse 1. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from afar. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. 
and he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said, to, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not understand? It's a sad reading, isn't it? But it starts on a happy note. The first scene begins with desperate followers. It's encouraging how eager these people are to be with Jesus. I know it feels very familiar to us. If you've been with us in our study so far, you remember chapter 6, where Jesus fed 5,000 people. You might be wondering, if you come to this, did Mark fall and hit his head and wake up and try to write the same story but messed up a few details? Of course, the answer is no. Jesus fed thousands and at least two different times. Different places, different numbers involved. But back to these followers, they're desperate followers. They've come to Jesus in a desolate place, verse 4 says. They've been with Jesus for three days. Presumably, he's been teaching all that time. Maybe some miracles as well. They've come from far enough away that for them to head back home would actually run the risk of them fainting without food on the way. So these are desperate people in more than one way. They're desperate because they need food, but they're desperate for Jesus. They're hungry for Jesus. They're hungry for truth. They've pursued him far from home, and they've stayed with him with some reckless abandonment. Some people in this room have gone to a theology conference or a Bible conference before, one out of state. You travel there, you stay at a hotel, and, and that's a big commitment. Maybe you take some time off work to go, you pay some money to go, and you sit and you listen to a lot of Bible teaching and preaching. But that's at a nice hotel. There's food there. Even if it's expensive, there's food there. There's lots of food there if there's enough. 
But these people apparently have gone to a Jesus conference in a desert, and they probably brought some food with them, but they didn't plan on staying three days. But Jesus is so Jesus that they keep staying, even as they run out of food, and, and, and Jesus has compassion on them for that. He has compassion on them for their reckless abandonment, for their Jesus relentless focus. He raises the dilemma to his disciples in verse 3. If I send them away, they're going to faint on the way. He's picking at them again, isn't he? He's poking them to see what they'll do. And they respond in rather typical fashion. In verse 4, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Remember, in the feeding of the 5,000, just two chapters before, it too was a desolate place. And there Jesus fed them with bread. And they say, how can one feed these people? You're talking to Jesus. He's the one. He can. He did. And Jesus responds to that in a familiar fashion. Verse 5, how many loaves do you have? It's almost like he rolled his eyes and said, all right, boys, let's do this again. He asked the same question last time, the feeding of the 5,000. How many loaves do you have? You think it would sort of spark some memory. Things would click if he said again, how many loaves do you have? And these desperate followers are fed in spite of the disciples' dull understanding and lack, lack of faith. They're not just fed. Verse 8 says, they ate and were satisfied. The desperate seekers were satisfied. They were even leftovers. Seven baskets of leftovers this time. We probably shouldn't make too much of these numbers. Uh, like 12 means something and then 7 means something. No, likely it just means that's how many baskets were full. It's just a historical accurate number, a recounting of a small detail. A small detail, by the way, that really sends a big message. These people not only ate until they were full and they were satisfied, but there is an abundance of leftovers. Whether it's 12 baskets or seven baskets doesn't really matter. It's a lot of leftovers that started with, with something very small. Here, it's seven loaves of bread, about pita size. And two small fish, maybe even minnow size. Now, I pointed out that there are a few small differences between the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000. Of course, a lot of similarities too. But one big difference between the two is that when Jesus was feeding the 5,000 in chapter 6, he was in Jewish territory. He was feeding the Jews. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, a very Jewish kind of saying. But now here in Mark 8, he's in non-Jewish territory. These are Gentiles. Jesus was just in the Decapolis area. He's still there, the 10 cities that were occupied mostly by Gentiles. That's significant because we saw last week in chapter 7, there's this Gentile thing going on that's pretty important. Jesus isn't just a Jew who's going to Jews. He's a Jew who's going to Jews and Gentiles. We saw last week that Syrophoenician woman who was a Gentile. And she begged Jesus for help. 
And Jesus provocatively said, well, it's not right to take bread from the children and give it to the dogs, because that's what Jews in those days called Gentiles. But with great faith, she responded, yes, but, but don't the dogs get the crumbs that fall from the table? Don't they get the crumbs? By that, she must have understood something. We don't know how much, but she understood something of God's plan for the nations. Something of his plan to bless and save not just Israel, but the whole world. This is what the prophet Simeon spoke about when he looked at the baby Jesus there at the temple in Luke 2. He looked at Jesus and he said, My eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, plural, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. This is what the prophet Daniel foresaw, a son of man coming. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus refers to himself as the son of man more than anything else. And I think he has Daniel 7 in mind. He's the son of man who came with a kingdom for all peoples and nations and languages. Isaiah 25 spoke of not just a, a person who comes for all the peoples and nations, but a, a time when the Lord himself, God himself, would feed them. The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. The Syrophoenician woman humbly asked for just a crumb. And you turn the page in your Bible, and what is Jesus doing? He's giving loaves and loaves and loaves to Gentiles. Not just a crumb, a banquet. The table that God was setting for Israel, he was also setting for any who would come and eat. Now the second scene. With the second scene, we have belligerent Pharisees. These are religious leaders in Jesus' day. They were something like the religious Gestapo of Jesus' day. And they have come to Jesus again. They came to Jesus in chapter 3 and again in chapter 7. In each of those instances, though, they came to watch, to listen, and then to ask a couple of questions they had of concern. But now in chapter 8, it's escalated. They've come to argue with him, it says, and to test him, verse 11. They demand a sign from heaven. It seems ironic just after the feeding of the 4,000. It's likely that they knew about it, heard about it, maybe even saw some remnant of it. They show up right on the heels of that last miracle. And they, they know far more than the... the the feeding of the, the 4,000. They've seen a healed leper report to them after Jesus healed him in chapter 1. In chapter 2, Pharisees were there when a paralyzed man was healed. They saw the paralyzed man be no longer paralyzed but walking. 
In chapter 3, they were there when a man with a withered hand was healed by Jesus. In the same chapter, they acknowledge that Jesus has the power to cast out demons, even though they said that power was from Satan. And yet, here in chapter 8, they demand a sign from heaven. Notice this wasn't a legitimate request or demand, however you slice it. They came to test him, not to test to see if he could do another or even a bigger. Literally, test here is to tempt or to, uh, to, to trap, to get him. They came with this testing, this tempting, in order to get him. They're belligerent in their unbelief. But belligerent Pharisees are ignored by Jesus. Verse 12, he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. When it says he left them, it really signals he's done with them. He doesn't really answer their question. In other exchanges, Jesus doesn't answer the, the exact question they ask, but he talks for a while. Here he just asks, why would you ask for a sign? There will be no sign, and he walks away. Why did Jesus refuse to give them a sign? Wouldn't a sign be the thing that they would need to see in order to believe? Wouldn't, wouldn't maybe a bigger sign, a better sign, another sign put them over the edge, perhaps, and they would believe, finally? It may be that they wanted a sign from heaven, meaning like in the sky, a cosmic one, maybe even an apocalyptic one. Of course, that's not going to come, not, not yet. Here's what D.A. Carson says about signs and belief. He says, many people demanded a sign from Jesus, and he roundly denounced them for it, sometimes dismissing them as a wicked and adulterous generation. One can understand why. The frequent demand for signs was in danger of reducing Jesus to the level of clever magician, able to perform tricks on demand. The result would be a domesticated Jesus. Jesus would have to buy faith and allegiance by a constant flow of miracles done on demand. Such a demand is wicked and adulterous. It makes human beings the center of the universe and reduces God to the level of someone who exists to serve us. He may capture human allegiance if he performs adequately, but at no point is he the unqualified sovereign to whom we must give an account and who alone can save us. I think that's it. Another sign wouldn't have really mattered. They were stuck in their unbelief. And really, they weren't looking for proof in order to believe. They were looking for proof to keep on not believing. Does that make sense? They were looking for proof to keep on not believing. And Jesus says, you got it. No sign. Thirdly, the third scene, we come to forgetful disciples. They're forgetful. Verse 14 says, they had forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. 
Now remember, they just left seven baskets of food. And so they forgot the food. Someone dropped the ball. Then Mark leads us in what seems like a parenthetical thought. Verse 15, these forgetful disciples are warned. Jesus speaks. He he cautioned them, verse 15, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Leaven, yeast, it's in bread. They have one loaf with them. They just came from the feeding of the 4,000. Leaven often in the Bible is a symbol or illustration for sin. It makes for a decent illustration because leaven or yeast is little, but it grows. It permeates. It's unseen. It's sort of mysterious. It's in there doing its work, and you can't even lift up the the cloth that's on top when it's growing, right? So leaven means sin. But why leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod? Ah, that those two would be put together. Herod is a ruler, right? He's unscrupulous in every way. The Pharisees are the picture of scruples. Well, back in chapter 3, in verse 6, after Jesus healed a man, it says, The Pharisees immediately held counsel with the Herodians how to destroy him. You know that saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend? Well, they have a mutual enemy, Jesus. And even though they're enemies and not friends, Herodians and Pharisees are willing to partner up. That's how the story ends, by the way, right? We know Roman government and religious leaders will partner up in the crucifixion of this Savior. In short, leaven of the Pharisees in Herod is simply stubborn unbelief. It's rejection of the Christ. It's not getting him and not caring to get him. And so Jesus cautioned them. Notice three times. He cautioned them. Watch out. Beware. The disciples are in danger potentially of going this path. If they continue to hear, continue to not get, they will go the way of others. They'll leave it, forsake it, reject it, or even oppose it. They're not there yet, right? They they don't yet see. We know that. They don't yet hear, but they're still with Jesus. They're not Pharisees. This is no Herod case here. But if they keep on with this, oh boy, it's trouble. How do they respond to Jesus' little sermon here? Well, they grow concerned, but not about that. Verse 16, they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread, debating with each other, arguing with each other. You can just picture, maybe Jesus gave his little sermon with this one loaf in the boat in his hand. Maybe he picked it up. He he likes doing this sort of thing, right? Drawing in the sand, looking at a tree, doing that kind of thing. Maybe he picked up the bread and said, fellas, beware, beware. Cautious of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. And they're staring at the bread. It dawns on them, maybe. Wait a minute, where's the rest of the bread? There's one loaf. There's 13 guys here. We're on a journey. 13 guys, one loaf. 
They're fixated on the one loaf. And they began debating and arguing among themselves. Who was in charge of the food today? Peter, was it your day? Right? We can't all be in charge of the bread. Someone's got to be in charge. Who got the one loaf and didn't get more? How's this going to work, guys? We left seven baskets behind. What are we going to do now? I remember a conversation I had with one of my kids several years back. It was one of those disciplined conversations that led to a spiritual conversation. I don't necessarily have the conviction that every disciplined conversation leads to this deep, thorough, spiritual conversation, partly because you'd have to do less discipline. You need to do more discipline than you have the time to give a, a thorough gospel presentation after every one. That's for another sermon, though. This is turning into a parenting thing now. But on this occasion, I felt... Uh, extra preachy, and so I, I started preaching, you know? I started helping and pleading and, and talking about the Lord and His grace and, and walking in His ways and pouring my heart out. And my daughter, I won't tell you which one, she interrupted me. She said, Daddy, can I ask you something? I thought, oh, good, here we go. It's going to be a good one. She's going to ask a question about her heart and her sin, God's grace for her, and this is good. She's not just listening, she's, she's asking, oh, good, oh, yeah, sure, what? Well, after we're done with this thing, can uh, we have some muffins? <laughs> Bend over. No, I'm just... <laughs> yeah, I, I thought she was... I was hoping she was thinking about something else than muffins at the time. The disciples are concerned about a lack of bread when they have the miraculous bread maker in the boat with them. You maybe have a bread maker at your house? Those things are wonderful, aren't they? That's how I gained my first 20 pounds of marriage, a bread machine. <laughs> yeah, that's another story too. <laughs> but they've got the bread machine with them, and they're worried. They've seen the 5,000. They've seen the 4,000 get fed with much less than what they needed, and, and yet they're marveling. They're fearing, they're arguing, they don't get it. And if you wonder, how could they be this slow? How could they be this spiritually dull? How do they not get it? The answer is, sin is that stubborn. Unbelief can be that dull. It's not a lack of information from which people don't believe. They sometimes get the information. Maybe it's even presented in a very smooth and wonderful and true way. And it bounces off of them. Like seed that lands on a road instead of in the ground. It bounces off of them. Sin is that stubborn. But again, they're not without hope. Jesus doesn't abandon them, but he does rebuke them. These forgetful, worried disciples are then rebuked. With nine questions, nine questions in a row. First, a string of rhetorical ones. Verse 17, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Do you not perceive me? Do you not understand who I am? He's leaving it opening, open-ended here. Do you not perceive? He doesn't say perceive what? He doesn't say understand what? 
A good math teacher doesn't give away the answers. You've got to come to them on your own. And Jesus simply saying, do you not perceive or understand? Implication, don't you know who I am? Are your hearts hardened like the, like the path? The seed bounces off it. Are your hearts hard? The seed is, is coming to you. It's bouncing off. Verse 18, having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? It's wonderful that, that hearing and seeing is right here as it is in chapter 8. Because in the last chapter, we saw this last week, there's a man there who's deaf, and then Jesus heals him and he hears. Well, what we'll see on Christmas Eve is a man who's blind, and Jesus heals him, and he can see. It's in the next section. And right between it is Jesus saying, do you not hear? Do you not see? These are illustrations of belief and lack thereof. They're illustrations of spiritual perceptivity. He says, do you not remember? Oh, they're forgetful in a far more serious way than just their forgetfulness to bring more food. Do you remember how things played out in chapter 6? Jesus fed the 5,000 there shortly right after the disciples get into a boat, and then they find themselves in a storm again. And then Jesus walks to them. He walks on the water, and he gets in the boat with them, and the storm ceases immediately. And Mark records, they were utterly astounded, confounded, not impressed, confounded, for they did not understand about the loaves. The loaves. What did the loaves have to do with walking on the water? Well, the guy who can feed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish, he can also walk on water, right? The, the, the laws do not apply to him. He's the God of food. He's the God of provision. He's the God of the water. He can calm the storm. Then Jesus raises a couple of questions about the math involved. These they'll have to answer. In verse 19, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. You can read this one of two ways, really. You can read the responses either as uh, embarrassed, 12, or still confused. 12. Like, we know the number. 12. Why? And it's not clear. It's one of those two, or maybe both, something like that. In verse 20, he says, how about the seven loaves for the 4,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? It's either seven or seven. Why? What's the big deal? Again, the key is not in finding some mysterious meaning to these numbers. Twelve often does symbolize something, like twelve tribes of the Old Testament. Yes, there are twelve apostles. Uh, but likely, these are just historical numbers. Again, it's reminding of the magnitude of these miracles. The math doesn't add up. Jesus is reminding them. Five loaves, 5,000 people, everyone's full, and twelve baskets left over. You remember? The math doesn't add up. Remember what I can do? And one more rhetorical question to boot. Verse 21. 
Do you not yet understand? Jesus has asked some tough questions before, but not quite like this. In chapter 4, he said, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? In chapter 6, he says, it is I, be not afraid. And in chapter 7, he asked them, are you also without understanding? Do you not see? But nine questions in a row here in chapter 8, that's something very, very different. He's raising the stakes here. He can't believe that they don't believe. Rebuke is maybe too strong of a word. I originally wanted to write the word berate there in my sermon outline. He berates them. He tears them down a bit. Oh, he lovingly berates them. Yes, it's a holy berating. But this is stern. This is different. Nine questions in a row, most of them rhetorical. They should have understood by now what all this means. They should have understood who this is. These verses in Mark 8 that we're looking at today are really more of a who story than a what story. What I mean is, they don't really send the message, don't worry about the what's of life, like bread, because Jesus has got your back and he'll provide, sometimes abundantly, with leftover. Instead, this chapter preaches this to us, you must know who this is. Who is it that can do this? Who is it that can lead you down a path of worry-free living? Right? I mean, because one loaf on a journey is reason to worry. Trying to feed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish, trying to feed 4,000 with what you got, there's reason for worry unless we get who this is. Do you see? Do you hear who this is? It's the answer. It's the Christ. It's the Messiah. It's the one. He's it. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one goes to heaven. No one gets to the Father except by me. He'll say in chapter 10, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. So that's how he's the way to the Father. He's not just going to teach good things or provide what's needed. He's not just going to heal a few people and then zip back up to heaven. He's come to die. He's come to pay a ransom, to make a payment, a payment for sin. The Messiah, the King, the One, He's it. And He's come to bring God's kingdom in all of its glory and fullness. And He does it through seeming defeat at the cross. And yet the victory of His resurrection proves that it was no defeat at all. Well, that gets slightly ahead of us in the story. The cross doesn't really get explicitly mentioned until actually the next story. What we'll see on Christmas Eve is that Peter comes to confess Jesus as the Christ, finally. And then Jesus predicts his death and resurrection, and Peter protests. He's okay with a Christ who can heal, who can feed, who can do many things, who can teach like he does. 
but one that dies, he doesn't get. Christian, do you remember? It says in verse 18, do you not remember? Isn't that so fitting for us? We're not just like the disciples in this story because we know the Christ if we're his, if, we're, if we've come to faith, if we know something of the Bible. We know he's the son of God. We know he died in our place. We know this is God in the flesh, raised in the third day, ascended on high, living forevermore. He's the Alpha and Omega. We go on and on with descriptions of, in, in terminology for Jesus. But we often resemble the forgetfulness of the disciples in this story that we looked at today. We often resemble their forgetfulness. In remembrance, in not forgetting, this is such an important theme in the Bible. There are whole psalms that are called remembrance psalms, like Psalm 78 and 105 and 106 and 135 and 136. I'd encourage you to read one of those today. They simply recount God's faithfulness up to that point. The major stories in the Bible that came before. Like God rescuing his people out of slavery in Egypt. Like God parting the Red Sea. Like him leading them through the, 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 the desert with food raining from above. God doing the mighty and miraculous. We need to remember who he is and what he's done. We we Christians need to remember and rehearse for ourselves like those psalms do who he is and what he's done and what he said. We Christians all the more. We have so much more info about his faithfulness. We have more stories about his faithfulness. There's more Bible than the psalmists had of the Old Testament. More has happened. He's done more stuff. We've got more to go by about who he is and, and what he can do. We have our own experiences to think on as well, right? Just like the disciples had this, this string of miracles in their wake that they should have been reflecting on and stringing together. They weren't, but, you know, we Christians do the same thing. God is faithful and faithful and faithful and faithful. And we forget. And not just faithful in the big things like kids or a decent marriage, or a house, or a job, or life-directing, redirecting decisions. But he's faithful and kind and glorious in all the mundane things as well. How many prayers do you think God has heard? He heard them. That's, that's mind-blowing, isn't it? How many prayers have you uttered to him, and they've been answered whether you acknowledged it or not. How many times have you prayed for safety on a trip and, and lo and behold, you show up? We pray sometimes before a trip that we'll arrive there safely and take it for granted when we do. It's amazing. How many meals has he provided? How, your favorite meal. How many times have you enjoyed it and really, really enjoyed it? That's God. That's part of his fingerprint in your life. How many sunsets, how many mountain views, how many good night sleeps, on and on and on we could go. We also know the stories of other Christians because we're in this thing together. We've prayed together about things. We've prayed for someone's illness and they got better. We've prayed about your cancer and it, got, it went away. Not always, but oftentimes it's, it's happened. 
We have miracle stories in our past and in our midst. And he's faithful again and again. And yet it's so easy when a new problem arises, small or big, we forget. We look at our one loaf. One loaf. No, one loaf. We've got more mouths to feed than one loaf. What are we going to do? We've got one loaf. Uh, whose fault is this? One loaf. Maybe we even dare complain to God. One loaf? I mean, sometimes you've given me 50 loaves. Now only one loaf. Figures. We often focus on, we fixate over, we, we fret about all the wrong stuff. Sometimes when we, no, all the time, really, when, we, when we're fixated on stuff and provision and care in all the wrong ways, we don't hear what Jesus is saying, just like the disciples. He's talking to them, he's warning them, and they're going, one loaf, one loaf, one loaf, one loaf. That's all they can hear. That's all they can see. We got to hear from him. We got to remember who he is and what he's done. We don't know whether he's going to heal this. We don't know whether he'll provide that. We don't know how he'll answer those prayers, how he'll protect you in the future, or how he'll provide for you tomorrow. But we know who he is. We know what he's done. We know what he said he would do in his word. We know what kind of God we're dealing with here. He's one who has compassion on those who go out to see him and stay with him. Do you not remember? Later on in Mark, Jesus will teach that we enter the kingdom like a little child, or we don't enter at all. Being a child is like a, it's a symbol for faith. We're not to be childish in our faith, but we are to be childlike. And if you came from a decent home where mom and dad cared and, you know, food was on the table, you, you know exactly what Jesus is saying, right? I was thinking this week about how fun it was as a kid to not worry about so much, not care how that's happening, right? That's, that's a great world to be in. And I know not everyone had that safe and easy childhood, but I, I was blessed to have one of those. You know, you're out late with mom and dad, maybe at a relative's house for a Christmas party. It's 1130, it's winter, and you know, you get in the car and you this is what I did. I climbed on the back where the window was because some heat would blow back there and it was comfy. Kids, these are the days before strict seatbelt enforcement. <laughs> I don't advise it, but, but I slept, right? I didn't worry about, is dad going to stay awake? I, I didn't worry about, does dad know how to get home? I went to sleep. It's fun when kids start to ask, how do you know where to go when you drive, mom and dad? How do, how do you know? You just, you learned this stuff? How am I going to know? But then they don't care. They, you know, they worry about it for a millisecond, then they forget about it. You don't come in from playing outside and say, mom, will there be dinner tonight? You, in faith, say, what's for dinner? Right? And mom tells you. You see bills on a desk, and you go, Bills, I don't care. 
They'll figure it out, right? You hear them arguing about bills or, you know, just at least intently discussing bills. And, and, and you go, you guys will figure it out, I'm sure. You've done it before. I don't know how. But apparently bills get paid, right? You must become like a little child to enter the kingdom. You can't figure it all out, but you know who he is. You know what he does. You know what he's like, and you bank on it. I don't know what God will do in this next year for you. I don't know what God will do in this next year to you. I don't know whether he'll lead you, but I know this. I know who he is. I know what he has done. And I know this, that he knows when you have one loaf. He's in the boat. He knows when you're on a journey. He knows. He can do anything he wants. He'll work it out. He'll figure it out all on his own. And he's good. Christmas shows us that again and again and again, doesn't it? Let's pray and ask for God's help to hear and to see. Oh, Lord, give us ears to hear and eyes to see this Jesus. Not a Jesus of our own making. Not a wax nose that we shape according to our desires or perceived needs. But the Jesus that is. The Jesus who is king. The Jesus who is kind. The Jesus who provides. And the Jesus who lays his life down. Lord, we pray for those here with us today who haven't yet come to believe that Jesus was a ransom for them. That he bore a punishment for them. That he paid for their sins. Maybe some here don't even yet think of themselves as needing a Savior, needing sins paid for. We pray you'd give them eyes to see and ears to hear like only you can do. We pray you'd conquer unbelief. And we pray, Lord, you'd give us Christians ongoing, increased faith. You'd give us remembrance, not forgetfulness. You'd remind us of your ways, remind us of your truth, keep us in your word. Keep us diligent in our conversations to talk of you and to recount your ways to each other. We pray you'd be glorified to give us help. Help us even now as we rehearse what we believe about who this Christ is and what he came to do and what it matters for us. Help us in Jesus' name.